0: Three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't Jesus. with some of these people. I put down on your th- goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my but advice. seriously. That legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by orthopedic surgeon Dr. David Hanscom. Dr. Hanscom and I explore issues including the dangers of sitting for too long, why the best solution for chronic pain isn't medicine or treatment but instead is just time, the business of medicine and how the modern medical field incentivizes practitioners to be dishonest with patients, and finally, why social isolation is so hazardous to your health. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Habits. Happy New Year, guys. This episode is coming out, um, I believe, on Friday, December 31st. Let me triple confirm that December 31st, 2021 is a Friday. It is. the 53rd Friday of 2021. Um, so, wow. So, we got 53 because of 52 weeks in a year. Somehow, we got 53 Fridays in 2021. Um it's crazy, you know, that that the the year is coming to an end. Um it it feels like I, I mean, I feel like people always say this, but it feels like the year kind of kind of flew by. Um you know, I remember I celebrated New Year's last year with my friends in Boston. Um and uh kind of reflected on 20 2020 and how, you know, difficult of a year that was for everyone and um I'll probably end up doing like an episode summarizing the year and looking forward to 2022 uh, pretty soon. It is, it is also crazy for me to think about the fact that 2022 is around the corner. Um, 2020, you be, uh, 2022 being the year that I finished law school and moved back to New York. Um, I think I said this, if you, if you, if you've been with the pod for a while, I think I said this, um, earlier in the year that it's just so mind boggling that, um, I came to DC in 2019 and i'm going to be heading back uh to new york in the summer i'll be taking the bar exam um don't know if i'm going on a, a, a bar trip or anything like that um but uh and by the way shout out to my mom for um telling everyone well so i took the mpre uh which is like the very um standard not you know ultra challenging ethics exam for attorneys i took it Uh, in the beginning of November, shout out to my mom for telling all of my friends and family that I I completed the first part of my bar. Um, I'm getting messages like, oh, congrats on on the bar. I was like, ma, ma, I've told them like the MPRE, the ethics exam is not the bar. (laughs) It's, it's not to say it's not critical and fundamental and all that, but like, it's not, you know, it's, it's not the the behemoth that the, um, uh, that the bar is going to, going to pose in 2022. It's also interesting. I'm sure you guys might have seen this. So February 22nd, 2022 falls on a Tuesday. So it will be two twenty two two zero two two. 2022. So you can say Tuesday. T W 0 S D A Y because it's all twos. So uh that was just a cool little factoid as we look forward to the new year. But I'll probably um end up doing a like a year year roundup, year summary in the um at some point in the next uh maybe the next episode will do like a bonus episode like a like a year uh, year in review kind of thing but I'm trying to think what's what's been new because I do record as everyone knows I record these episodes in advance so we're still in November now um, uh, I might have told you that you guys this already but I got the iPhone thirteen um, recently and it's crazy how advanced the features on the iPhone thirteen are I mean there's This, like, face ID thing, which is remarkable. Like, if I look at the phone – I know I'm going to sound like an old man when I say this. But if I look at the phone, it unlocks just by scanning my face. But then if I put on a mask or sometimes if I'm wearing glasses or – I haven't tried this. But, like, if I have a beard, it doesn't recognize me and it won't unlock. Um, So that's kind of, like, remarkable. Uh, I do miss, like, the fingerprint thing. I miss that button. I had the iPhone – think it was the iPhone seven or or the six with the button and the the fingerprint analysis. I missed that. Um, It's also been bugging me to put my credit cards on here, like with Apple pay. And I'm kind of torn because I think on the one hand, if I use Apple pay, it's convenient. Everything's on my phone. um, I just, I don't need to carry a physical credit card. I just scan it. On the other hand, like, that just feels like a lot. I kind of like, Carrying my my wallet and my phone separately, um, I think that they you know it's a nice like uh, division of responsibilities between the two things. I also think isn't it risky, right? Like to have all of your payment information on your phone. I feel like you know if you lose your phone, you're you're kind of SOL. You know you're shit out of luck. Um, so I'm probably not going to do that. But it was funny. I will say I was at the Verizon store and. Um, the the uh, customer service rep, who was very very nice and very helpful uh I was just hitting him with so many questions about the uh about the technology pennies Penny's crying' because she's reflecting on twenty twenty one it wasn't the year that she wanted it to be no so i i this guy was fielding my questions this poor guy of the iPhone thirteen most people probably like take the phone, ask, oh how long's the battery and move on but I was literally asking I was like, wow like there 's two cameras on on the back of the phone, and somehow they they sync up to create an image like what 's the technology behind that, or like asking him specific questions on like on on the difference in memory and um storage and and the mechanics behind that and then so you know how you can tra you can uh, transfer your data from one phone to the next when i was when I was younger, you used to need like a physical wire. And you plug in the old phone and you plug in the new phone and it takes like three, four hours. And one by one, they transfer all of your messages manually and all of your apps manually and your photos and all that. But now with the cloud, somehow I I, I was – so I had a lot of anxiety about turning in this phone because I have so much on this phone. I have voice notes. I have you know the, the notes app. I have voicemails. And I was just anxious. I was like – I don't want to lose all that when I get a new phone, but somehow you guys, um, and then this is all for for Gen Z, for the young people listening, somehow they were able to duplicate my entire phone on the new phone, like literally to the point where it's the same background, the same lock screen picture, all the apps are there, all of my messages, all of my voice notes, all of my photos and videos, um, to the point where he handed me the iPhone 13 And it was literally the identical phone. It was a clone of the phone, except faster um, and like a physically different device. So, getting back to how difficult of a customer I was, so I was just so enamored. I was like, "Oh my god, you know, can you like like how how have we gotten to this point? Like, you know, Apple like whatever." And I was just hitting him with questions. And this poor guy, (laughs) I don't think he he knew what to do with me. Um, But uh, yeah, I was definitely reminiscent of my dad, because my dad um, listens to the pod, might remember, my dad has a flip phone, and, and he sends like messages with the numbers, like instead of the letters, he has to hit like w- two, three times, to do the letter F, and like, you know, M, three, and like all of the, and like he doesn't have a space bar, so kind of reminiscent of my dad, I was so like, um, and I consider myself pretty technology forward, like staying on top of, of things, but like when it comes to actual um like products i've just never been a materialist to the point where i need the next big thing like i need the the newest iphone or um ipad or wearable like you know apple watch i've been minimalistic but um but so far i mean this iphone's pretty pr- pretty good pretty fast um oh actually you know what's also interesting i think i asked i went to the apple store um and uh i think i started mentioning uh, I went up to one of the Apple um, – uh, what are they called? The Geniuses, the Genius Bar, spinoff of the Geek Squad. I asked him. I was like, oh, hey, um, um, I needed a, a new iPhone because my old iPhone's battery life was slowing down and uh, Apple was intentionally degrading my old phone's performance. And this guy was so defensive. You would think he'd like laugh about it because I was kind of making a tongue-in-cheek joke about how Apple – um, deliberately slows down the operation of their phones when new models come out. So you think he'd like laugh about it, but he was actually pretty defensive. Like, oh no, 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 we don't do that. We don't do that at Apple. Like, you know, there's no way that that um, we would actually, you know, uh, intentionally, you know, because they're hit with these pro with these obsolescence lawsuits all the time that they're manipulating and slowing down their old devices um, when they put out new software. But yeah, he was he was pretty hurt, uh, upset about it. So I, I thought that was just um, pretty funny that even at the lowest. Uh, levels of the totem pole um yeah apple (laughs) apple won't stand for any slander on the timeline man so this is this has ended up being a long intro rant about the iphone 13 but in any event i'm gonna probably do another episode uh talking about the you know the, the year in review and looking forward to the next year um so things have been things have been solid otherwise i mean i um I'm going to my one of my uh close friends from childhood is is getting married um in Texas uh next month in December. So this episode's coming out in late December, so when this comes out, I will have already attended the wedding. Um so I'm sure that's gonna be uh that's gonna be pretty pretty emotional for me and um for my buddy. Uh and then of course final exams are around the corner and Uh, my clinic is keeping me busy in law school. Um, So a lot of stuff in the future of now, which will have been in the past when the episode comes out. But yeah, so getting to this episode, um, I actually had a chance to interview a very prominent orthopedic surgeon. Um, And I think this conversation, just to be like candid with you guys, (laughs) it's really geared towards two groups of people. It's geared towards people who are not young and probably struggle with Um, back pain, or if you're, you know, if you are young and you struggle with back pain for some reason, this conversation will be useful for you. And it's also really, um, and I think it's also going to prove to be uh, practical for folks who are neurotic hypochondriacs, right? Like who are always worried about their health, who are always running to WebMD and Reddit looking for medical advice, or if you're me, pestering your friends in med school with questions. So, Either people who are, you know, struggling with back pain, or people who are neurotic, hypochondriacs, um, guessing. If you're a listener of Nervous Habits, you might fall into the s- second bucket. Um, but I really wanted to speak to today's guest about uh, two things, which are really structural issues in the back, like uh, sitting and posture, and the dangers associated with those things, as well as non-structural issues, which are more related to um, acute and chronic pain caused or exacerbated by anxiety or OCD or other forms of psychosis. So, and we talk about both, both structural and non-structural issues. So I just want to say a couple words about um, my guest this week. Dr. David Hanscom is a board-certified orthopedic complex deformity surgeon and the author of two books, Back in Control and Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? He quit practicing spine surgery after 32 years when he realized that most of the operations cause greater pain, problems, and even addictions, which we'll get into in the episode, and developed the DOC direct-your-own-care method to go pain-free without surgery and medication. He was featured on Good Morning America this past summer, along with several other individuals who remained pain-free as a result of his DOC method. So I'll say before the interview, um, this was a little bit of a chaotic, I think, uh discussion. Just because David kind of interwoven his own um anecdotal experiences with patients as well as his personal experiences with chronic pain into his discussions of the structural and non-structural issues. Um so hopefully we don't lose you <laughs> through the conversation. Um and I'll also say like following the interview, I'm gonna do a debrief like I always do, where I sort of distill the conversation down to a couple key takeaways um, so I'm hoping that that will help you guys make sense of our conversation but it was a lot of fun to, 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 to chat with David about about these issues especially for me because I, I never went to med school um, but I consider myself like an armchair um, armchair physician like my doctor friends always tease me about so I love the chance to learn about the the medical profession through conversations with with folks like Dr. Hanscom so without further ado my conversation with Dr. David Hanscom Dr. David Hanscom, welcome to Nervous Habits.
1: Thank you, Ricky. I'm excited to be here. And I love the name of your show because what I'm finding out is these nervous habits are ubiquitous as part of being alive as a human being. And we spend a lot of life energy trying to deal with these things. And it's actually an incredibly solvable problem.
0: Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I'm glad, I'm glad you uh, recognize um, sort of the, the theme behind the pod. So you've been an orthopedic surgeon since uh, 1985. What was it about the musculoskeletal system when you were, were starting out as a med student that you found so appealing?
1: Well, it's structural. And I, I, I actually started working in the construction field when I was 14 years old. And I be, basically be, became almost a journeyman carpenter over about 20 years so I actually worked my way through medical school doing concrete work, framing, all sorts of labor. So I like structural things. And so orthopedics seem like a just interesting thing to do. And that's how I got into the whole surgical
0: world. So the reality is, uh, David, is, is that the, the human body and particularly the back um, wears down as you age. So I'm wondering, you know, a lot of the listeners are, are, are on the younger side of nervous habits. So, So generally speaking, Do you believe that this sort of back pain is inevitable for all people? And at what age should listeners really start to be concerned about back pain?
1: So it's a complex spine surgery working from the neck to the pelvis. And so I eventually learned that as you age, even in your 20s, discs start to lose water content. That's it. So as all of us get older in every cell in the body, your water content lessens. The disc becomes darker on MRI scan because the MRI scan measures water content. So it turns out that disc degeneration is sort of an MRI scan diagnosis. We call it degenerative disc disease, but the better term is actually normally aging disc. Every research paper that looks at this has documented that disc degeneration, herniated disc, ruptured disc, bone spurs, arthritis are not a cause of chronic back pain. They are not. So yet we're over, we're, so again, we're talking about chronic pain over more than six months versus acute pain and chronic pain in any part of the body, migraine headaches, brain sensations, skin rashes, all of those are neurological, neurochemical issues. So what I found out, I spent eight years of my practice operating on people's back pain with lumbar fusions to, quote, stabilize this degenerated degenerated disc. Then the data came out in 1993 that the success rate of back fusion in the solid back pain was 22%. So I stopped. So you're saying there's zero connection between disc dehydration and pain, period. Okay. So are people in
0: their, should people in their twenties be more vigilant or is that the time when people should start being vigilant about this kind of thing?
1: If you want to talk about acute pain, again, you can tweak your back, tweak your disc and it hurts for a few weeks. So after a few weeks, like any learned skill with repetition, your brain memorizes the pain. So chronic pain is a completely different animal. So acute back pain is actually self-limited, gets better. It's very anxiety-producing, it's a hurt so badly. So we don't know exactly what causes acute back pain, even though we have lots of different theories. So it could be a little bit of a disc tear, muscles, tendons, ligaments, all those things can cause back pain. But with chronic pain, let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, lack of sleep actually causes chronic pain. They did a major study out of Israel on over 1,000 patients over four years that showed that lack of sleep actually caused chronic low back pain. They did not find the reverse causation. We also know that lack of sleep is inflammatory. So it turns out that all chronic disease, mental and physical, is the same soup. The reason why I dove into this other conversation a little deeper than maybe you wanted for a second ago is that it turns out that these principles apply to all chronic disease, both mental and physical. It's the same soup. So anxiety and cardiac disease, by the way, are the same process. And we can talk about that in a second, but that's what's changed my whole process. I quit spine surgery to see what I could do to halt the craziness of spine surgery in normal spines. But it turns out we are doing spine surgery on anxiety. Then it turns out anxiety is not psychological. So it's about the body's physiology and neurochemistry and When we look back at high school and medical school, we actually learned this in medical school. And for some reason, physicians are ignoring this data. So what I'm doing is is basically presenting known documented treatments in an organized fashion to the general public. Medicine right now has no data for what they're doing. There's not one research paper in 60 years that says doing a spine fusion on back pain is a good idea. Results are consistently bad, catastrophic. Then there's multiple papers, again, saying that chronic disc degeneration, arthritis, bone spurs, herniated disc, bulging disc, they don't cause back pain. Mm-hmm. We actually know that. You know, we're actually doing $20 billion of surgery a year on normally aging spines. It wow. is the cause of the pain.
0: So just just sort of a note to, to listeners, um, some of the conversation that that we're having right now will be hyper-tuned to dealing with chronic pain. Some of it, as as David alluded to a moment ago, will just be sort of general notes for improving your quality of life overall. And David had written extensively about chronic, chronic pain in uh, his book, Back in Control. There's actually an interesting quote here I wanted to share. Um, he writes, the essence of the chronic pain problem is often that no one can find the source of your pain and no one believes you. Your suffering is severe and often extreme, and there does not seem to be a way out. It's an extremely dark place to live in. For most, it's beyond comprehension. So in your book, you actually write about how when patients come to you with such severe pain that they're not sure they could go on, sometimes you communicate that you don't believe they're suffering from um, any structural issue, but rather NPD, neurophysiologic disorder. Can you explain to listeners what this is and how common it is?
1: Humans have a problem: is that thoughts, unpleasant thoughts, are processed in the same part of the brain as a physical threat. And you think that's, and we think it's a virtue to suppress anxiety, and it's not. It actually eventually causes disease. So we actually know that chronic stress. There's a study out of UCLA that shows that chronic stress actually produces what's called warrior monocytes, which, which are destructive white blood cells that not only destroy viruses and bacteria they destroy your own tissues. So that's why Parkinson's and Alzheimer's is the same thing as anxiety and depression. They're all inflammatory. So we know it's called the genomic expression of social factors. So there's two things that set off these warrior, it was called warrior monocytes. Again, they're killer white blood cells that are just super aggressive. They're like killer bees compared to honeybees. So what they do, they start destroying their own tissues. And we've known for 50 years that chronic stress causes major diseases and early death.
0: But David, I'm curious. So, so, so when you talk about how we're, we're suppressing our anxieties instead of actually dealing with them, how does this play into um, your, diagnosis of, uh, um, your diagnosis of your patients of having NPD? Are you uh, positing that most of the chronic pain that people experience isn't actually structural? It, it, it's actually neurological?
1: Your body creates symptoms every day. I mean, when you walk upstairs, your legs get tired. If you're running from a predator, you get really tired. You're breathing hard your body, your heart rate goes up. I mean, everything we do every second is based on your body's physiology. 90% of all symptoms are created by the body's physiology and less than 10% are structural. And the data shows Mm -hmm. that. Remember, there's three parts of processing life for every species of creature. You have the input of your stresses, you have the state of your nervous system, and then you have the state of your body's physiology or the output. So the input, nervous system, and the output. So part of that fight or flight response is the body's immune system and inflammatory reaction also increased metabolism or the rate of fuel consumption. So you have elevated fuel consumption, you have inflammatory response, you have your heart rate and everything going 100 miles an hour. So when you're in sustained fight or flight, it's like driving your car down the freeway in second gear, it's going to break down, right? So we know extremely well since the 1960s that chronic stress actually kills people early mortality, cardiac disease, hypertension, obesity, again, Alzheimer's, anxiety, bipolar, all these types of things are, they're actually inflammatory. So remember, anxiety is just a sensation generated by your body's fight or flight response. It's the result of a threat, it's not the cause. So we're actually, what happened, the, the anxiety, so my cat has the same sensation, but we have language that we call it anxiety. So I don't use the word MPD anymore, neurophysiological disorder neurophysiologic disorder. I say, look, this is how your body responds to a threat. So the essence of chronic disease, mental and physical, is exposure, sustained exposure to threat physiology. The essence of the solution is actually training your body through multiple ways. It's not hard to do. to actually create safety. You can't heal in fight or flight, right? You're consuming resources to survive. And so you have to get into safety as much as you can. But what's missing now in medicine We treat symptoms. You have a headache, take a pill, you have pain, take a medication, but we're treating just the symptoms where the root cause is that overwhelming stress compared to your nervous system. Mm -hmm. And we don't know patients anymore. We don't have time to talk to them. I don't know you as a person. I don't know your stresses. I don't know your coping skills. I don't have the time to help you teach the tools to do this better. So we quickly treat symptoms like they're structural where again, 90% of it is physiological. So the term is called medical unexplained symptoms, which means the doctors are saying, well, we know you have symptoms, we know you're suffering, but we don't know exactly why, and we'll do the best we can to help you manage it, but have a good life. What they're really saying is that we, you have to live with the pain the rest of your life. That is just not true.
0: So I hear what you're saying, and you actually support a lot of this in the book when you talk about how uh, there a lot of people believe that there exists emotional pain that's so intense that it rivals physical pain. Um, and you actually allude to research that backs up that finding. Can you share that
1: with listeners? Well, again, it's exactly the same thing. So the research on a recently shows that the thoughts are input. So thoughts that are unpleasant, the research term is called URTs, or unpleasant Repetitive Thoughts. That creates this reaction in the brain that creates fight or flight. So emotions are what you feel with your body's chemistry. So the research shows that those thoughts are processed in the same part of the brain as unpleasant physical sensations. So it's the same. It's actually the emotional pain and physical pain are actually, I'm sorry, emotional and physical chronic pain are essentially the same thing.
0: So it, it, it's interesting because I think a lot of people um, who suffer from chronic anxiety or OCD or generalized anxiety can, can definitely relate to, to what you're saying about how sometimes they might, I know my, my father's actually a hypochondriac and then he has he a pretty low threshold for pain. Like he might have a migraine or a headache that um, for most of us would just be annoying or be, you know, a, a little bit. Um, burdensome, but for my dad, it's all-consuming. So I think that sort of, you know, supports your hypothesis that this this sort of anxiety and these these URTs does exacerbate uh, the subjective perception of, of pain.
1: Absolutely. So you physically feel these sensations much much more, and then when people start becoming aware of this connection, um, just start watching the link between. And my patients get really good at this, but just start watching the link if you're upset by your spouse or a partner or something at work upsets you, watch what happens to your pain. Mm. And again, people say, well, it's psychological. No, the pain actually went up. It's not your imagination. It's not because you're a wimp. The pain actually went up. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I know you noted in the book uh, that in medical school, you were taught that back pain disappears 90% of the time um, and that patients should sort of buy time until it resolves. So is that part of the reason why your sort of your central belief is that people with chronic back pain should go pain-free without medication and without surgery?
1: So again, I'm just trying to present documented medical treatments that are there. Medicine right now doesn't have the data I call it this. You know, this integrated medicine. Integrated medicine comes closer than um, mainstream medicine. But the, my term right now for mainstream medicine is disintegrated medicine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Treating just symptoms, we're not looking at the root cause of these symptoms, which is again fight or flight physiology. And so, when it comes to people going to pain free, you can't do it with positive thinking. You cannot do it with my normal matter. You cannot do it with physical therapy. You get to understand the sequence of how the body works. Once you understand the nature of why you're developing the symptoms, then you can address the input. You can calm down the nervous system. You can control your body's physiology and between approaching these situations on your own terms, symptoms disappear. It's not managing chronic pain. The symptoms actually disappear, including anxiety.
0: Right. And you actually um, – you sort of formulated this, this interesting method, the DOC, direct your own care method, um, mm-hmm. which, which is all about um, taking back – uh, you know, control and, 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 you know, tailoring your own plan to addressing this, this pain. Um, the first one, and you alluded to this earlier, the first of the four steps is getting seven to eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. So why right. is that? Is, is that, so first of all, is that important for everyone, regardless of, of chronic pain? And and why specifically folks with, with chronic pain, is it important?
1: So what sleep does is uh, let's talk about pain for a second. Again, like I said, like I said before, lack of sleep has actually been shown to induce chronic back pain they did look, look at just back pain. Then they also found out that one night of sleep that's poor actually doubles your pain the next day, but they also found out the research shows that there's more of a correlation with lack of sleep and disability than there is with the pain. And so what happens with lack of sleep is inflammatory. Again, we're, we're talking about safety versus threat, and you need to be in this safety, rest and digest mode before you can, before you can heal. And so people get four or five hours of sleep and they think they're not sleeping because of the pain. It's actually the other way around. So lack of sleep is inflammatory. So what sleep does, we look at the input nervous system and the output, what sleep does, it increases the resiliency of the nervous system. So it takes more stress to set off the flight response. The other things that help the nervous system become more resilient is an anti-inflammatory diet, right? So I'm not a great diet person since I'm a surgeon, but I have learned that if you can do an anti-inflammatory diet, again, you've dropped down the reactivity of the nervous system. Um, And the other thing that's really profound, that exercise is profoundly anti-inflammatory. Again, increasing the resiliency of your nervous system. So yeah, the answer is sleep is probably number one. If we don't give people sleep and the rest of the project doesn't work.
0: Okay, so so it's most important that people uh are getting that seven, eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. The other right. thing that 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 you note in the DOC method is expressive writing and ripping. So so I, I've never heard of ripping. What what is that and how might those factors um help with this?
1: So in 1982, Dr. Penny Baker started the research on expressive writing. And there's a bunch of different ways of doing it. You can do it verbally, you can write it on a piece of paper. But what he found out is that emotional expression on a piece of paper was incredibly effective in improving liver functions, kidney functions, dropping down anxiety, depression, sleep, actually wound healing improved, viral load dropped down. I mean, it's like 30 major physical changes that occurred with what's called expressive writing. And they did it with deep emotional expression. And it turns out that people have a hard time writing down deep negative thoughts. Mm -hmm. They're sort of afraid of them. And so what we started to do is just writing free writing. And the reason why you tear them up is for two reasons. One of them is that you can't escape your thoughts. It's just a separation exercise. So the thoughts are on a table you're sitting right here. And so that's, there's now a space connected with vision and feel. Right. So it's a metaphor for separating from your thoughts. And there's a very famous essay written by Dr. Wagner, 1999, is called the seed of our undoing. So humans have a need for mental control, which creates all sorts of havoc in the mind mm-hmm. and simply writing down the thoughts that you're trying to suppress makes a huge difference. So you tear them up for two reasons. One of them is to write with freedom, the more crazy bizarre the thoughts, actually the better, doesn't have to be, but the more emotional expression comes out on a piece of paper, the better. And then the re- other reason to tear them up, which I think is more important is that when you write, all these issues come up,
0: right? Mm-hmm. They're not issues; they're just thoughts. For people that are skeptical about this, wh- what you're saying is the second step in your method is just by putting your feelings and anxieties and fears onto paper and ripping it up. You're helping to alleviate back pain.
1: Remember to pull yourself out of fight or flight physiology. Right, back right, right. Many, right.
0: Activate like the or the um the parasympathetic nervous system. Just calm them down from that fight or flight. So is so for people who are maybe a little bit skeptical about it, it just it it might seem like like. You know how, how, how effective can that really be? You know what I'm saying? It, it's necessary.
1: Actually, every human being on this planet should be doing expressive writing because the problem is we have anxiety and frustration, which are automatic survival reflexes. The unconscious brain processes about 20 million bits of information, information per second, 20 million. Wow. The conscious wow. brain processes 40. So we do all these rational things like self-esteem to try to overcome this massive survival response and you can't live without the survival response. So with this, with the expressive brain, does it, it separate these thoughts and consciousness from this massive survival response? If every living creature has a survival response, including humans with their consciousness, why, why would we ever take it personally?
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: sociopathic, it's amoral, it's supposed to be unpleasant because it forces you to take survival action. So the first step is actually looking at the anxiety, frustration as a necessary survival response. It's a gift. We would right, not be right. alive without this response, but it's not controllable with rational means. So with self-esteem, we're doing an endless number of things to make, try and make yourself feel better about these unpleasant sensations. And when we feel better, we feel badly about ourselves when we get judgmental, critical, self-critical, whatever it is. And then so we're trying to do this self-esteem thing to compensate for this massive survival response. That's very, very, very unpleasant and it's supposed to be that way.
0: It, it also does seem like um I mean for for Gen Z, for folks in Gen Z who are listening who are uh, you know adapted to the digital world, this does require putting a pen to paper, which <laughs> might be foreign for a lot of people to actually be able to to rip up the thoughts. There's no digital equivalent, David. you can't type something out into uh, you know onto uh, Word doc and then put it in the trash. you actually need to physically rip it up.
1: Well yeah I talked to Jamie Pennyberry about about this and the answer is we don't know, and I think it probably is fine. I think it probably is okay. And then you also can do it verbally. There's research showing you you actually stand in a small room and just verbalize the thoughts you're trying to suppress. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what David Byrne suggested, which I I found personally in my own journey out, you stand in front of a mirror and talk to the mirror with the thoughts that you have in your head. Mm -hmm. You would never talk to another human being the way you talk to yourself. It's a very... Look yourself in the eye and try that. It's very unnerving, by the way.
0: David, I, I want to finish explaining the, uh, um, the the four-step approach because we talked about the importance of un- uninterrupted sleep, uh, expressive writing and ripping. The third factor that you uh, allude to, and, and you mentioned exercise, but you say either a form of physical exercise and or meditation. So how would this be effective?
1: So what happens with mindfulness, which is different than meditation, I call it active meditation. And we actually did this in surgery all day long, where you just, I mean, just right now for a second, just drop your shoulders, take a deep breath, let it out. And what you're doing, instead of fighting these racing thoughts, which by the way, gives them more neurological energy. um, You simply switch sensory input and you do it three to five seconds all day long. I wish I could do it more. I get distracted, but it does become somewhat automatic that in a little frustrated or some crazy thought pattern coming into your brain, just drop your shoulders and feel the back of your chair. So you basically what you're doing. You're changing the sensory input with what's called mindfulness. And again, the active meditations are very abbreviated form of mindfulness and it's very effective meditation, by the way, is a very advanced skill. I mean, honestly, an advanced skilled meditator can do the entire doc process on their own, right? You look at the input, you separate from it. You've come down the nervous system, you've learned a regular microbiology physiology. But what happened with most of us is I could not get my patients to start there. I could not do it myself. And so what the expressive writing does, by the way, it actually does. Remember, meditation is awareness, separation, watching the thoughts come in, watch them go out, mm-hmm. and then you move on. So it's a powerful process that's great for maintenance. But most people's minds are racing so fast and they're so frustrated and their metabolism is so high, they can't start there. So meditation is very powerful. It's sort of the end game with this whole process. Um, But what the expressive writing does is a term we use for expressive writing called mechanical meditation. We've done awareness and separation in one move, the thoughts in the paper, you've now separated. And then the third part of neuroplasticity is redirecting. And that's where you take a deep breath, drop it down and just put your brain on, on a different sensation. So the little mindfulness exercise combined with expressive writing actually is the same thing as meditation. You've done awareness separation and then redirecting. And so the writing just very concrete, breaks through the circuits. I will tell you it's the only one mandatory step of the process. It's not the solution, but nothing really happens without it. And again, there's 1,200 papers published right now that states that it works, 1,200.
0: Yeah I I I, deb- I definitely I definitely um uh see that as being sort of a, a fundamental component of this process David and the fourth step that you note um and this is something a lot of listeners can relate to you say avoid gossiping or talking about your pain and I'm sure a lot of people either you know, themselves or their parents or relatives or friends um, know that there's you know, people who are constantly either expressing discomfort or uh, just complaining about how much pain they're in. So why, why wouldn't that be – because you mentioned how important it is to, to be expressive and, and to put your thoughts to paper and to verbalize. Why wouldn't that be effective? Why is it important to avoid talking about your pain?
1: Well, first of all, you're connecting with other people. And so there's a mirror neurons effect. You're actually reinforcing the pain circuits. So remember the solution to chronic pain is actually you're developing a different part of your brain that doesn't have pain. It's like installing your virtual desktop on your computer. So what you're doing, if you're, see people think they have a better life by solving their problems. You have a better life by creating a better life. So the key word here is neuroplasticity. Your brain will develop wherever you place its attention. So if you're going to learn French, You're going to practice the verbs. You're going to learn the skills. You may immerse yourself in France, but you're not going to learn French by trying to fix your English. So you're reading self-help books. You go to medical care. You're talking to your friends. You're complaining. Where's your brain? Where's your brain's attention? It's on the pain. Right? So what we found out equally as powerful as the expressive writing has been simply, let's say you're in my office right now. You've had chronic back pain for three years. I'm going, Ricky, when you walk out of the door of my office, you will never discuss your pain or medical care with any other person except your providers, especially wow. your family, especially your friends, ever. And then again, since mental pain is a bigger problem than the physical pain, no complaining, no gossiping, no giving an for advice, and no criticism. The essence of healing is minimizing your time in fight or flight. So you're complaining and gossiping. What are you doing to your nervous system?
0: It's always cranked up. It's always in, in high gear.
1: Right, and this is the hard part. People say, well, that's a psychological intervention. Not really. You're just changing the input, which changes the physiology. Remember, your sense of well-being in this planet depends on your body's physiology. So if you're in rest and digest in that physiology, you feel great. If you're in fight or flight, you feel agitated and anxious, and you don't feel so good.
0: That's a really good point. I hope that, uh, that folks listening will will take that one to heart, um, That uh, but that you really should only be discussing your pain with with your providers, um, to the extent that you can. So, okay. So we mentioned, uh, getting seven, eight hours of uninterrupted sleep, expressive writing and ripping some form of exercise or meditation and avoiding gossiping or talking about your pain. Um, but as I alluded to uh, you know, a few minutes ago, even though you were taught and you've you know learned that back pain generally disappears 90% of the time without medical intervention, uh, there is a lot of pressure in the medical profession. Um, and not just in orthopedics, David, but, uh, in, in other, uh, you know, feels as well to be prescribing a drug or, you know, performing surgery as opposed to just biding time and and prescribing rest or, um, some of these, some of these other practical measures. So why, why do you think that is, do you think that's a problem in all, uh, you know, medical fields or, or or mainly concentrated in yours?
1: So now in modern medicine right now, and there's a long story behind this is that we're not allowed to talk to our patients I don't know you. I don't know your coping skills. I don't know how the root cause again is when your stresses overwhelm your coping skills, you go in a fight or flight. Historically, doctors are a place of safety. You, the doctors listen to you. They understand your issues. They used to make house calls. My father was a family doctor. And so people felt really good going to their doctors. Right now we're under time pressure. We're actually forbidden to talk to our patients. So modern medicine, by taking away the capacity to listen, is a very... It, I think it's negligence. In other words, the number one thing I have to do is actually, first of all, from a purely safety standpoint, I want you to feel comfortable with me. I need a relationship with you actually to heal. So when we talk about back in control, we, we can talk about the doc journey, but it really starts with a healing, healing relationship with your clinician, physical therapist, chiropractor, whoever it is, is that's always been the number one thing is actually trust your doctor, feel safe with that person. Then you find ways to learn to feel safe with yourself the problem right now, people feel the opposite. People aren't talked to, they're not listened to, they're bounced around. And again, we're treating just symptoms. So it's no wonder people feel trapped, really trapped. Right. And on top of it, with the opioid epidemic, the first thing you do when you go to, go to a pain doctor, they want to drop your opioids. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not a fan of opioids, but I'm not a fan of on the first visit, taking them away. I mean, what does that do to your anxiety?
0: No, no, I, I think there's something to that, like medicine being reactive and not preventive or, or proactive. But don't you think I'm, I'm, you know, and I've spoken to uh, other medical professionals on the podcast about this before. Don't you think that as a patient, there's an expectation that the visit to the practitioner is not worthwhile unless you get a prescription or unless you get a surgery scheduled. Like if you're a patient and you're paying these expensive insurance premiums and you're paying insurance and copays, and you go to a, a surgeon or a specialist, and the specialist just says, oh, you know, give it time, uh, rest, write, sleep, all the stuff that we've been talking about, the patient will feel like they haven't received their money's worth. Do you think that, that there's anything, do you think that's a contributing factor to the medical profession's tendency to to overprescribe in, in these respects?
1: So, but Ricky, this is the business of medicine. So we're telling you that there was something wrong with you, and we can give you something to fix you, but it's going to cost you money, right? Yeah. So there's a vested interest. So what medicine done, they programmed us. We know this physiology really well. It's been around for centuries, particularly decades. So what's happening is that it's profitable for us to spend less time with you, to see more patients, do more procedures. 80% of a surgeon's income, by the way, comes from procedures. Okay. And then the like spine surgery, the effectiveness is 22%. So we are flat out, I mean, I don't know if you saw the, docudrama of, um, the Sackler family of dope. sick. No,
0: the, uh, on Hulu, the dope sick. I'm, I'm actually learning, learning about, uh, learning about in my corporations class, but I've yeah. not gonna watched it.
1: Doing the same thing in spine surgery. We are lying to the public. We are, we, we are not being truthful that if you, if I told you that you had a, a chance of success of 22%, would you do the operation
0: as a, as a practitioner? No, absolutely not. No, no as, a, as a patient, Oh, as a patient? Uh, no, no, yeah. I wouldn't. Don't, don't, you think patients, don't,
1: you think, don't you think patients should know that?
0: Yeah, there's there's informed consent issues for sure, um, and and I think it's it's important um, for people to to educate themselves and, and have conversations like this as well. And, and and I also think, as you're saying, this isn't. And, and just to be clear, David, this isn't just um, relevant to orthopedic surgery. Uh, uh, you know, I know this it's outside of your specializations, but like, does this apply to other? Does this apply to like? neurological procedures as well or or cardiac cardiac you know cardiac procedure is, is it ramping across the medical well i profession? spent two years
1: being in, in internal medicine before i started orthopedic surgery and so then i you know by default i spent tr- tremendous amount of time in the mental health world mm-hmm. and remember doctors tend to compartmentalize themselves because they are um it's more profitable but guess what we're physicians we know all this stuff I mean, doc, specialists will wash their hands and say, "Well, that's not my duty or not my job." That's not true. Yeah. Remember, a person is a living human being creature that responds to the environment with cues of safety versus cues of threat. And when you now you have symptoms, you come to the symptoms with the doctor. So, if you have a stomach ache and I give you some medication for your stomach ache, but you're going home to an abusive spouse, how's that going to work, right? Because I mean, so that uh, stomach ache is not psychological. It's your body's response to a true threat. There, right. So again, when your body, so I don't know if we review this, but there are over 30 different symptoms created by sustained fight or flight, 30. And then also the diseases, and again, cardiac disease, Alzheimer's, peripheral vascular disease, hypertension, obesity, anxiety, depression, OCD are all the same diagnoses. Mm -hmm. So again, sustained fight or flight, the solution is creating safety with either your own tools or with people around you, et cetera. Um, I think we told you that the lack, one of the biggest factors creating chronic disease is actually social isolation, because social connection creates a drug called oxytocin, yeah. which we now know is strongly anti-inflammatory. So you say, oh, you're with people and you're talking about psychological issues. No, social connection secretes oxytocin, which is the most powerfully anti-inflammatory hormones in the entire body.
0: Yeah, and social connection isn't something that the doctor can freaking put on their prescription pad or, or schedule you for 9 a.m. on Friday morning. It's something that you right. have to seek out on your own. Um, I wanted to make sure I touched on a couple of of issues that might be relevant to young people listening and increasing the quality of their life, uh, particularly with with back health and spine health. Um, For years, people have been saying that sitting is the new is sitting is the new smoking. Um, I don't know if that's like a recent expression or that's been going on since when you started practicing. But but do you agree with that? And if so, what's 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 so dangerous about sitting?
1: I mean, there's more stress in the disc when you're sitting than standing, but that's not what's causing the chronic pain. So there's a paper out of Australia published about three years ago on 9,000 people. And they showed that watching time watching TV actually increased mortality. And what they noted in this study, they they, they documented cardiac disease, all these other risk factors. And they found out it didn't matter what you watch, that your mortality, mortality rate went up based on the number of hours you watch TV. Well, what it is, two things. So watching TV is inflammatory. They, they, they looked at the inflammatory markers and they documented not only was watching TV inflammatory again, just based only the number of hours, not the programming. So the more hours you watch TV, the higher inflammatory markers and the higher incidence of cardiac disease and death. Mm-hmm. So that's a sitting issue. What they didn't document was I just told you that there's a great study out that shows right at the mitochondrial level, which is the level of the cell engine that um exercise dramatically drops inflammation Mm -hmm. so it's not so much sitting mechanically in your back that's a problem it's the um inactivity like for exercise that's the issue
0: it's interesting that you point that out i remember i had a friend in medical school he listens to this podcast and he used to always tell me and i'm I'm interested to, to get your take on it but he used to tell me that um if you sit for too long you're you're at risk of developing one day out of the blue a blood clot in your leg like a pulmonary embolism or uh, deep vein thrombosis and basically just drop dead out of nowhere and ever since then i've tried not to sit too often so is that kind of like an urban legend or is there is there any truth to that
1: no this little bit this little bit of it is part part of both in other words if you're just a normal healthy person and sit for hours is very very unlikely to get a blood clot so we do know Therefore, prolonged plane rides <clears throat> actually can cause what's called venous stasis, and you can, can develop a blood clot that can travel to your lungs so you can drop dead. But usually, a lot of times with a pulmonary embolus or a blood clot in the leg, um, it's one of the first signs of really cancer is an undiagnosed malignancy, it makes the blood hypercoagulable. There's blood disorders that actually are hypercoagulable. So, you know, sitting in itself, I wouldn't say it's inherently unsafe. I do think getting up and walking once an hour is desirable for lots of other different reasons. So, yeah, if you have be one of those people that doesn't really know about your risk factors for a blood clot, it's certainly fine to get up and walk around a bit. But it's, that's, that is actually not, that's more of a mechanical issue than everything else we've talked about. So that's a true structural issue.
0: Got you, got you. I, and I think that nowadays, and you've seen this particularly after the pandemic, um, and I'm sure you've experienced this either with, with former patients or, or with people that you know, more, more and more people are just hunched over their computers, working in suboptimal makesh- makeshift home offices, sitting for hours you know, uh, with poor posture. I'm wondering if you found that this has contributed to either earlier onset of lower back pain or more chronic back pain, particularly among uh, young people.
1: Yeah, acute pain. Sure. If you're standing for a long period of time, poor posture, you'll have acute pain. But again, that goes away within a few minutes to hours or days. But again, with the chronic pain, remember chronic pain is a completely different animal. Your brain memorizes the pain. So remember when you're working at home, you're socially isolated. We've known for a long time that social isolation creates exactly the same symptoms as chronic pain. Yeah. So that's the key issue is that you're socially isolated. Remember, you're not exercising either. I mean, if you're so if you're exercising, still hanging out with friends. And by the way, talk about the you know people in their twenties and thirties. There's a huge signet study done a couple of years ago, in 2018, that showed that the instance of social isolation in this country is 53. The group, so social isolation creates a disease load that's equivalent to smoking about 15 cigarettes a day. The group most affected by wow. social isolation, the most group affected most by social isolation is people in their 20s. Oh, wait, oh wait.
0: I, I, I want to make sure, uh, you know, f- for listeners um, that, that I'm understanding what you just said. S- social isolation creates the same d- disease load as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. What do you mean correct. disease load?
1: You know, cancer, diabetes, obesity, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. I mean, anxiety, depression, all those things are, again, inflammatory responses. And so social isolation creates that process. Remember we talked about early out of UCLA, you get these warrior monocytes or these aggressive yep. white blood cells. So yeah, social isolation. And I didn't know why. I mean, I heard that data years ago that social isolation creates the same symptoms as chronic pain. Well, I now, now the word is chronic disease, not just chronic pain. Of course, chronic pain is one of those diseases. But social isolation causes people a lot of major physical and mental illnesses.
0: And I wonder, given the you know the proliferation of working from home and, and Zoom and all that, and, and I don't know if there's empirical evidence out yet to support this, but when you say social isolation, does um, you know virtual interaction, uh, you know, is that excluded from social isolation, or are we only talking about in-person interactions, or it's unclear?
1: You know, that's a great question. I just, it's unclear. I mean, Dr. Stephen Portis, have you heard of Dr. Portis by chance, the polygamy? I don't think so. No. Um, Anyway, he and I have been working together the last, last couple of years and, you know, it's called co-regulation there. When you're with people face to face that every mammal has to decide whether somebody else is safe or dangerous. So it's mammals who have an independent jaw, They have different ear bones compared to reptiles. So it's called co-regulation. Mm-hmm. So what the vagus nerve does is anti-inflammatory. So anytime you approach somebody, you have to say safe or dangerous, which arouses your sympathetic nervous system. So it's interpretation of facial muscles and facial expression that allows a parasympathetic nervous system to kick into place through the vagus nerve. They actually allow people to socially interact. So the answer is we do know that, for instance, when we do Zoom meetings, well, they, that they seem to be as effective as in-person meetings, but I don't think Amos think really that Zoom is a way of social interaction that really makes makes up for not seeing people in person.
0: Got you. Got you. Um, I, I want to go back to the acute pain for a moment um, with respect to the structural issues. It does seem like nowadays uh, everyone from from young people to middle-aged people uh, has, has very poor posture. I'm wondering what you make of this um, and, and, you know, whether people listening, can, whether there are active steps that people can take to improve it.
1: Well, I mean, I do think that obviously keeping your back straight, which less, less stress on your whole body. Um, but I also think that you, we do know, we've known this for many, many decades that one of the biggest factors is actually improved my patients in chronic pain, both mental and physical, but particularly physical is the weight room resistance training. And there's something that happens in the weight room that, We do know that as people get older, they lose their muscle mass, the weight room completely stops and reverses that process, number one. Second, well, there's something about actually pushing the weights that changes the activity of the brain from being reactive to proactive. So it's not just the weights themselves and blood supply to the muscles. There's something to do with the nervous system to the muscles. We actually know with weight training that there's things called foot plates. Uh, When the nerve attaches to a muscle, they're like little frog toes onto the muscle that with weight training, you actually increase the density those density of the nerves on the muscle. The imprint of the nerve on the muscle is bigger with resistance training. So again, the, you know better posture is fine, but it doesn't make up for this stuff that we just talked about. You got to work out and you got to exercise.
0: Yeah, I, I think okay. So, so for listeners that are looking to improve their posture, um, weight room and resistance training, what about for people listening th- to this right now, um, sitting at their desk in the office? Uh, what would you what would you recommend? Would you recommend I think you mentioned a moment ago getting up every now and then, uh, standing desks, taking taking breaks? What do you think would be the best course of action there? I'm
1: sort of guilty as charged, even though I'm quote retired, I'll sit at my desk for two, three hours at a shot which my wife is not very happy about. So I think that's not a good idea. And I just had a total hip replacement done a week ago and I'm sitting around too long. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, we all get busy concentrating, but I think the key issue is to definitely, I know I keep harping on this. So let me just jump back in the big picture. So there's never one answer to chronic pain and chronic disease. Mm -hmm. It's always a combination of things and exercise is not the final solution, but it is huge. So really, three to five hours a week will change your life. Forget about everything else I just said. Of course, sleep gets better. All, things, all sorts of things start to happen because exercise is anti-inflammatory. And also obviously a lot of things happen in exercise. And I know it's hard for the group to make the transition, but we think about, oh, posture and pain, and this, and this. Posture is a small part of it. Remember the chronic pain, everything helps a little bit, but nothing solves the problem in isolation. So yes, you should have a good posture. You should have exercised. You should sleep. You should do expressive writing. You should not discuss your pain. All those things add up. One of those by themselves will make no difference at all.
0: Okay, so so one of these activities that you're recommending isn't going to completely resolve the problem. All of them, um, you know, needs to be done for all of them in conjunction. Um, so to everyone listening, you can purchase Dr. David Hanscom's books back in control. And do you really need spine surgery, uh, on Amazon or anywhere books are sold? I'm sure my listeners want to know where they can go to follow you and to learn more about your work in general.
1: Well, again, we have a process out, it's a guided course called the DLC journey, direct your own care. This is very self-directed. And then we have an app coming out in a couple of weeks called, it's going to be the doc app. And so. I, I learned it the hard way. I'm, I'm not very happy when through it, by the way. I'm still not very happy about it, but I'm very, very grateful and feel honored I can learn the skills I learned to pass this on to many, many other people. So we've had hundreds of people break loose of their chronic pain, particularly the mental pain
0: yeah no I mean you're doing you're doing incredible incredible work, so definitely everyone listening make sure to check out david's david 's website uh, and if if anything that that we've said that we've talked about today um, interests you or if you think you can benefit from it, don't hesitate to reach out uh, Dr. David Hanscom, thank you so much for joining me again. I really appreciate you taking the time
1: Thank you Ricky. No, I really enjoyed it you're great
0: There you have it guys. That was my conversation with Dr. David Hanscom as I sort of alluded to before our discussion. Uh, it was a little bit a little bit chaotic, um, so I think it might be helpful to sort of take a step back and um, distill the conversation down to a a couple of a couple of takeaways and dr Hanscom had a, had some uh, some really compelling points that he made, particularly when he talked about neuro uh, physiologic disorder, which is where and, and he mentions this in his book back in control he he mentions that what your brain is doing when you have um Uh, NPD pain, is it's creating its own endogenous pain stimuli. He likens it to phantom limb pain. So your body's registering pain even though, in that case, the offending appendage has been removed. And neuroscience has confirmed uh, that after three months, chronic pain sufferers' brains are rewired with neural connections to newly developed brain centers that generate their own pain signals. And these signals are independent of any dysfunction in the body below the victim's head. So this actually supports the notion that a lot of people with chronic pain uh, even though you know they they um, y- even though they might believe it to be a structural problem with like a herniated disc or something like that, a lot of times it's it's originating from these these pain centers these newly formed neural connections in their brain um, so I think that that kind of supports his hypothesis that anxiety and stress hormones and Unconstructive, repetitive thoughts, URT. That's a lot of times the primary cause and driver of chronic pain. Um, so for people I, I know, I mentioned my dad in the in the episode with with David. People like my dad who, are, who who often suffer from this form of pain would, you know, benefit from a reminder and an awareness that a lot of times it is um, uh, not just exacerbated but caused by um, those those uh, psychosomatic issues. We also talked about emotional pain that is so intense that it rivals physical pain, and I thought that this this was this was pretty pretty uh, significant as well. And um, in the book, David alludes to research that's revealed a significant overlap between the neurological patterns of emotional and physical pain. So there was a study done in 2003 that showed similar areas of the brain were activated during a simulated social rejection scenario, which would be emotional pain and the application of a heat wand to the volunteer's forearm, which is physical pain. So in this study, the participants were asked to lie in an fMRI machine, and they participated in a, a like a computer game of three-way catch. The computer was programmed to suddenly exclude one person from the game. And when that happened, that would be the emotional pain. Researchers saw that the same circuits that lit up in the brain when the heat wand was applied to their arm lit up in the brain through the social rejection, which shows that this this emotional pain can be so potent that it's almost the same as physical pain, and you apply that to other scenarios, right? Like you know, think about like a broken heart or the pain of um, rejection, or you know, uh, um, having a falling out with a friend or or an argument with a loved one. Um, you know, that could be that could literally uh, light up the same the same parts of your brain as burning your hand on the stove. Or maybe like a nasty cut in the kitchen or something like that. So I thought that was an interesting uh, takeaway from his book as well. And that's actually why he mentions he mentions how dangerous social isolation is, because the same factors that decrease that increase social pain will increase physical pain, and the same factors that decrease social pain will decrease physical pain. And that's why social support is so helpful in healing and decreasing pain in many arenas. And that's also why people. Feel mentally better when they're they have a supportive social network or when they have you know some form of, of emotional connection, um, and in that respect, you know pain in general can be almost um, contagious to the to the degree that we when we don't feel well physically when we don't feel well we're more react- reactive to those around us. David actually mentions in the book in his office. Um, as an orthopedic surgeon, when he's talking to the family members of people in pain, no one was happy. I mean, when he, when, when you're in pain and you're upset, there's a really high likelihood that you're not being nice to those close to you, and and that's, um, that's something to be to be mindful of as well. There was another part of the book we didn't we didn't um we didn't get to it in our conversation, but I thought it was really interesting. So David alludes to children born with something called congenital insensitivity to pain, and people with this condition. You you might have you might have like seen videos about it, but people with this condition can't feel the difference between sharp and dull, or hot and cold. So they can't actually sense when a hot beverage, for example, is burning their tongue, because they have a lack of pain awareness. And while that might seem great, it might seem like oh wow, they they can't feel pain, they're indestructible, they're invincible. What ends up happening with uh, people born with congenital insensitivity to pain? Is they end up accumulating wounds and bruises and broken bones and other health issues that might go undetected they might have had um they might have mouth or finger wounds due to repeated self biting um, they might experience burn related injuries and sadly, people with congenital insensitivity to pain often have lower life expectancies. I think in the book he says like a lot of people you know pass away before they're a teenager so I think that shows, and this almost gets back to the conversation with Anna Lemke when we talked about pleasure and pain. Almost the, the utility of pain, like evolutionarily, we need pain in order to understand what not to do, right? Like, don't, you know, our our nervous system is telling you, don't put your hand on a hot stove, or don't put your hand in the fire because you'll get burned, or you know, don't approach that wild animal because it might bite you. Um, so. So I think that so it makes sense that people with an in, uh, congenital insens- ins- insensitivity of pain would end up suffering those injuries. You know, I might I might change the name of this podcast from "Nervous Habits" to uh, "Painful Habits" <laughs> or "Nervous Pain" because uh, I feel like that that's a, a theme now of the um, of the podcast. But uh, but yeah, I mean the survival I, I mentioned the survival expectancy of people born without pain receptors. David talks about in the book is twelve to fifteen years. So. Um, so yeah, I, I found that I found that really interesting. We also didn't get to talk m- much about – I think David mentioned neuroplasticity once or twice, and I've talked about neuroplasticity a number of times, but uh, in case you're newer to the pod, what neuroplasticity is, it's the brain's capacity to adapt and change at any age. So usually – so I talked about it in, in relation to um, memory and building and accumulating skill sets. Um, But the nervous system has almost an unlimited capacity to evolve. Uh, David notes the brain has 86 billion neurons, all of which have multiple connections to each other. So the number of connections is almost infinite. And the upside of that is you can tap into neuroplasticity to decrease your stress chemicals and to alleviate your pain response. And in the book, David talks about – and this is is all stuff – I've mentioned on the pod or all stuff you're familiar with, but he talks about ways to actually tap into neuroplasticity, meditation we've talked about, mindfulness, cognitive behavioral therapy, expressive writing, eating as a way of, of decreasing stress chemicals, not stress eating. So, so let's, not, let, let's not get that confused. Sleeping we talked about, massages, things like that um, are, are ways to uh, actually activate the neuroplasticity in, in, your, in, your, uh, in your brain for good. And I guess the last thing um, to note following my conversation with with David is uh, what he mentioned about the dangers of inactivity. The whole sitting is the new smoking argument and this is not news to you. I mean you, you guys I feel like everyone you know standing desks are like a new fad like everyone everyone's familiar with this. actually I will say about the standing desk. It was actually funny. I was in an office the other day and I saw I, I think it might have been like an electric standing desk, but you push a button. And it becomes so. So when you stand up, it's 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 a standing desk. It's like right at your shoulders. Then you push a button, and it becomes a normal desk. So that I think might be like the either the home office desk of the future or just the office desk of the future. And yeah, I mean like the data, the data is irrefutable, you guys, um, especially post pandemic. So there was a Gallup poll conducted in um, January, and it found that 56 of American employees were always or sometimes working from home, while another survey said that 18% of Americans added more than seven hours of daily sitting time to their days in 2020. In quarantine, whether you're sitting at the computer doing work or you're streaming things, sitting on the couch um, watching Netflix or, or you know HBO, um, or you're just sitting having coffee, people people are people are sitting all the time, and that inactivity um you know is is toxic it's toxic to to your body for ways i mean we're just we, we're just talking about orthopedics today but you know if i had a cardi a cardiologist on i'm it was also toxic to your heart health um and and it's it's important not just to uh not just to stand and walk around every 20 30 minutes every hour but it's also important to to maintain good posture and and, and david alluded to that as well and it does bear repeating right like sitting is kind of inevitable you think about think about certain occupations bus drivers bank tellers but i guess they i guess they can stand gamers people who who go on who use twitch anyone who works at like a computer designers programmers like you're going to be sitting a long time that that's kind of inevitable I guess you could stand, although I guess in some of those occupations you can stand as a bus. Like they have buses where you can stand and drive and they have, you know, gamers can just stand instead of sitting. But it is it is inevitable, you know, but but the research, you know, at NHS, uh, Mayo Clinic, the research does show that sitting slows metabolism, which affects the body's ability to regulate blood sugar, blood pressure, break down body fat, and it's especially risky if you're overweight and obese, if you have... Um, Type 2 diabetes. So it is important to, to get up and move, right? Like, um, you know, take the, the stairs instead of the, the elevator or the escalator. Uh, set a reminder to get up and walk around every hour, right? Like if you have – we talked about – I mentioned wearable tech earlier. If you have um, an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, I think it I think it probably shakes you. That's one of the benefits. I don't have an Apple Watch, but I'm pretty sure that every hour or so the Apple Watch, like, vibrates and tells you, like, get up, walk around, have some water, or whatever. Um you know like like take a walking break take a coffee break for me like i am ne- never sitting too much because i have a dog and i think if you're really worried about sitting buy a dog you know adopt a dog because uh it's hard to sit when you have something that you got to take outside to walk every uh every couple hours honestly the best piece of advice that i would give and, and i really should take it myself is invest in like an ergo an ergonomic chair I mean for me, I've been using the same swivel chair for a couple of years. I have like a nice back pillow behind it. But if you think about it, you're 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 sitting at this chair for especially if you're working from home, like seventy, eighty percent of your of your your work day. Um, you know, you wanna be you wanna be comfortable, but you also want it to be the right height and support your back in the proper spots. Um you know just cuz and david talked about this like the seated position puts so much stress in your back muscles your neck and your spine especially if you slouch like like i do um so invest in a good chair you know people say buy a good mattress cuz you're going to have it for a long time you're going to be sleeping on it a third of your life whatever same thing invest in a good chair i remember i went to um i went to my uh, my friend's place and she had she had this like incredibly supportive chair it was like it felt like i was sitting in I can't even explain. It felt like I was I was on Shark Tank. I was sitting in like Mark Cuban's seat. Um, It was just great back support, perfectly level. My back was I was I you know made me want to be productive. Made me want to pull out my uh, my legal research and start working on these briefs. (laughs) So yeah, invest in an ergonomic chair and um, and sitting posture is important. I remember when I worked in an office. Every couple months I'd have like a, a fixation on a different part of my health, right? Like, So I went through a, um, a posture fad where I'm like, okay, I need to put a tennis ball behind my neck. And if the tennis ball falls, then that means that my posture is messed up. And I had signs all around my, my desk, good posture, good posture, good posture, good posture. And it worked for a little bit, but then eventually I started slouching. And now, um, yeah, and now now my posture is kind of fucked again. But so the advice that my friend gave me that he got from his trainer – on good posture is, you wanna you wanna tuck your your armpits in like like you have really bad bo, and you wanna conceal it from everyone. So so you're standing with your arms straight. If you're listening to this and you're standing, stand with your arms straight, head up, shoulders back, and then push your your um, armpits down and in like you're trying to conceal your bo from the world. I think that was a pretty pretty good uh, piece of advice I got on posture. I do think, and I kind of alluded to this in the episode, I do think that everyone, like societally, we just don't have, (laughs) we just don't have great posture. I think, especially because we spend so much time looking down on the phones and sitting at the computer, all of us are just perpetually slouched, like our our shoulders are rounded. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, so it's important, like I said, stand up straight and tall, shoulders back, stomach in, head level, um, and then... um, Tuck your tuck your armpits in. I don't know why. Um, I you know this descended into me giving advice on posture since I, um, I can definitely benefit from from taking that myself. But that's more on the structural side. Uh, I know that David didn't talk a lot about structural issues, um, so I felt like I should at least touch on it um, in the the post discussion debrief. But in any event, really enjoyed my conversation with David, and honestly, I I would love to have more uh, medical professionals on the podcast, more more surgeons. Um, it'd be great to talk to a cardiologist. I've always been super super intrigued by heart health, so stay tuned because maybe maybe that'll be my, my next my next uh, medical practitioner guest. You never know. So, next week, as I alluded to, um, I'm going to be releasing another bonus episode, kind of summarizing 2021 and looking forward to 2022. That's coming up next on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. Search for full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast and email the pod at Nervous Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, the human body inevitably wears down as you age. So sit up straight, don't hunch over, and remember to have good posture. The future you will thank you. Take care and stay nervous.